Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. I just want to pray before we, we enter into it. So Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We pray in your name. Amen. For those that have been coming regularly, we've been studying 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and it's taken us most of this year to get through it. Today is the last Sunday, and we're on the second half of 2 Thessalonians, so from chapter 2, verse 13, through to the end of chapter 3. Normally, I'd have a PowerPoint up, but, um, you know, a good Pentecostal or preacher here would have three points, and um, today I've got... Not three points, I've done how many points, and it's expository rather than topical, meaning that we'll go through verse by verse. Now, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are two of Paul's earliest books. They were written about 51 AD, so roughly 20 years after Jesus was on the earth. And um, if you cast your mind back to 20 years ago, um, for those my age, it doesn't seem that far, and all the events are pretty fresh in our mind. And so it was for the Jews at the time, whether you loved Jesus or didn't like him, he would have been a person that most Jews would have heard about and known about. We read in Acts 16 and 17 that Paul was on his second missionary journey and he went to a town called Philippi and we know that town because he wrote a book to the Philippians but while he was there persecution followed Paul and um, he went and cast a demon out of a, a young girl and the owners of that young girl saw the loss of income so they started a riot and had Paul and Silas put in jail and that night there was an earthquake which broke open the, um, the doors of the jail. The <clears throat> people in the jail didn't run free, but the jailer was ready to commit suicide because he thought he'd lost his charges. But he quickly found and heard the love of God and became a Christian that day. But it was unsafe for Paul to stay in Philippi, so the locals in Philippi suggested that he leave, so he went to a few other places and then found himself in Thessalonica. And as was Paul's want, for the first three, Sunday, first three Sabbaths, that Saturdays, he went to the synagogue and preached about Jesus. And he established a church there pretty quickly. However, opposition followed him and he had to leave again. From there, we find he went on to Rome. And a little bit later in that same chapter 17, we find him speaking to the... Sorry, he went to Athens. And a little bit later, we find him speaking to the Greeks in Athens. The thing about Paul is he was unique. Paul was a Jew, as we know, and he had the full knowledge of the law. He was a Pharisee, so he was a keeper and knower of the law. He would have known what we know as the Old Testament off by heart. And he called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisee, so he was so dedicated as a Pharisee. He studied under a man called Gamaliel, who was probably one of the greatest rabbis that has ever lived. But on top of that, Paul grew up in Antioch and he was a Greek. So he was able to argue and think as the Greeks did, and the Greeks were great debaters, and a lot of our way of thinking is still attributed to Greek philosophy. So Paul goes to Athens, and he drew on his knowledge of Stoic philosophy, which was a a way of Greek thinking, and was able to talk to the Athenians. Some of them called him a babbler and talking nonsense when he spoke about this unknown God. But for others, they became Christians and followed him. And Greek was probably Paul's first language. On top of that, Paul was a Roman citizen, and that carried huge benefits. And we read in chapter 16, when he was in Philippi in that jail and got kicked out, he got taken before the leaders, and he said, I'm a Roman citizen, you've got no right to treat me like this. And they were really, really worried, because as a Roman citizen, he 
carried great weight, and they assumed he was a nobody when they threw him in jail. Back when I was studying and training to be an eye surgeon, my boss, who was a world-respected world ophthalmologist, used to get people coming from all around Australia and Southeast Asia to see him with eye problems. Though he was the last roll of the dice for many. Some of them had had problems since birth, and it was just um, something that they were born with, and it was very hard to do anything for their eyesight. And he had a saying where he would say to them, well, I'm really unable to help you. It's the cards you've been dealt. And that was his sort of saying that he would say. And um, if you're not a Christian, I guess that's the way you look at life. But um, we're all unique and we're made in the image of God. So not the cards we've been dealt, they're the qualities and that that God has given us. And Paul had these amazing qualities. However, we've got the same uniqueness as Paul. Not one of us shares the same DNA with another person, unless you're an identical twin. But then environment will make those identical twins be a little bit different. So the challenge for us from that is that we've all been uniquely gifted by God and he's all called us for a certain purpose. One of the other things about Paul, apart from that uniqueness I've mentioned, is he had the ability to condense a large amount of information into one short sentence. And it was a God-given talent that he had, but it was also due to his background of his Greek upbringing, his Jewish um, being a Pharisee. If I was writing what Paul was trying to get across today, I would be verbose and would only get a part of it across. But Paul was quite amazing. And probably the book par excellence for that is the book of Romans, where you can find in one verse there is just an enormous amount of meat. But it's the same in every part of the word that Paul wrote, as well as the other writers of the New Testament. So we'll start by looking at verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, follow along. It used to be... Um, tradition that if you're a good Christian you brought your Bible to church but the days of um, Apple iPhones and that has probably put an end to that so I look around not a lot of Bibles on the table so we've got it put up here I'm reading from the New Living Translation because that's a good contemporary translation um, some purists would say that it's got a lot of faults but um, I think it makes it very easy to understand so in verse 13 we find Paul starting this section by giving a second lot of thanks he starts the chapter in chapter 1 by giving thanks in verse 3 and we looked at that a few weeks ago <clears throat> but here he's giving thanks for the believers in Thessalonica Paul always however had a thankful heart he always tipped his talk from an angle, an angle of giving thanks rather than the opposite but like all of us he had a choice to make he had things to be thankful about and the things that he thanked God about in these letters is usually his salvation the way he was the worst of sinners he said um, a persecutor of Christians, um, but he also thanked people in the churches that he established. In his thanks, he was encouraging them. But he probably had a lot more to grumble and complain about than most of us here today, and he documented his persecutions quite well. And you can see in 2 Corinthians 11 from 23, he just mentions in passing not to boast, but he says, I've been in prison many times. I've been whipped more times than I can count. I've faced death again and again. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked three times, with one of those causing me to spend a whole day and night adrift in the sea alone. I've faced danger from robbers, as well as danger from Jews, and as well as Gentiles. And probably the Jews were some of the biggest danger he faced, because he would really offend Jews with his preaching of the gospel. But he did all that for the sake of his calling for the gospel. And the Thessalonian church was dear to his heart, because they were amongst the first of the people to convert to the gospel. 
Paul was treated badly by many, and he was let down by many, but he always came from a position of thankfulness. You never once find him grumbling or complaining anywhere in his writings, and I'm sure that was his heart as well. What a great example it is for us, and I just ask as a rhetorical question, what's our default setting in all circumstances? I know I'm certainly not perfect, and when things don't go my way, I can grumble like the best of us and complain. Um, Probably my wife would be the best one if you want to find out any more about that. <laughs> Perhaps my daughter as well. <laughs> Son-in-law. Grandsons are a little young to know that. But it's a great reminder that if we don't have a thankful heart, it's something that can actually be changed with the help of the Holy Spirit. And if we want a quick self-check to see whether we've got a thankful heart, just go and look at Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Here we see the fruit of the Spirit. And it's mentioned love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul goes on to say well, there's no law against those, but they're the signs and the measures of a thankful heart. And if you look at someone who is a mature Christian, you'll find that some or all of that fruit is, is in evidence. But a bit like fruit on a tree, they don't come overnight. Fruit takes time to grow. It takes a season to grow. And all of us are somewhere along that journey of growing fruit. If we're not, we should be striving in that direction. So we've been saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and that sets us apart for God's purpose and by our faith in the truth of God's word. And this eventually leads to spiritual maturity, which the scriptures mention in big words called holiness and sanctification. But the part of the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our life is something we have to be proactive about. We've got to invite the Holy Spirit into our life to do it and then tilt our heart consciously towards God so that we continue to strive to be more like him. That's in one verse. I'm sure we um, won't get through the whole topic, and I think um, you could probably have preached more and more about that. So if we look at verse 14, we find Paul reminds us that we were called to salvation when we heard the good news of the gospel so that we can obtain and share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this raises the old chestnut of free will and predestination. That's a whole topic in itself, and it's been debated and talked about since the time that Jesus walked the earth, or just after. Paul wrote about it many times, and I'm not going to explore it today because we could spend weeks just on that topic. But suffice it to say that Paul here says we've been called to salvation, so we've all been called. All of us should have a similar story of salvation after hearing the good news. For me, I was eight years old. My parents were Christians, not, not pastors, but running Sunday school and youth groups in the church I grew up in. And it was a strong Bible-believing church. And I remember at a church camp, which was held every October long weekend. So for me, it was 1963. Don't remember the preacher, but remember sitting there in about the sixth row back and just feeling this burning need in my heart to go forward when he called for anyone that wanted to confess their sin and accept Jesus into their heart. That was me as an eight-year-old. Um, my life has been changed ever since. It took a long time for that outworking of my conscious decision into the way I acted. Um, as a boy, I was rebellious, naughty, and all those things that boys can be. Some of us may not remember the exact time and date that we were saved, but we should remember a time before and after our salvation and the changes that that has wrought in our lives. If you've not experienced that salvation and would like to know more, please don't go away today without speaking to one of the leaders here, myself or Bron or Andrew or Phoebe or anyone in leadership after the service and we'd be very happy to talk with you more about it because what I've learned is there's no time like the present because we really don't know what the future holds. Yeah. And salvation is a free gift from God and it gives benefits like most gifts. 
Parents usually don't give gifts to their child that are going to hurt them. Parents give gifts to their child that are going to benefit them. So there's benefits for the here and now. We've got a God that loves us, wants to walk with us. He won't deliver us from problems, but he promised that he'll walk with us and guide us through all the problems that we're guaranteed to face in this life. That's just one of the few benefits of this life, but it gets better in that we've got eternity ahead of us where we get restored to the position that God made humankind for, and that was to live in close and personal relationship with him. So for us, when we get to the end of our days, whenever they are, we've got a hope of a future. I've been to a country called North Korea many times, and in that country, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in anything after this earth. And having spoken to people there about what the end of life means, their answer is nothing. Um, that's it, it's over. And that's a pretty depressing thing. Moving forward to verse 15, we find Paul often wrote to churches warning of false teaching and being led astray. And here we find Paul leading us to stand firm and to hold tightly onto what we've been taught. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a floodwater. Probably people in Sydney and Lismore, some of them have recently. Um, the closest I've been is being in the beach where you're sort of standing with waves coming in trying to hold your ground. And you stand firm with your feet apart. And as the waves come, it's trying to sweep you away and you stand firm. But if you're in floodwater, often you'll grab onto something with your hand and hold on with that as well to try and reduce the chance of being swept away. So it is with our spiritual life. We need to stand firm with our feet and hold on tight. So what does that mean? Well, standing firm really, to me, means regular reading of the scriptures and let it soak into us. As a Christian, we really should be reading our scriptures every day. I've formed a habit where I start my morning, quick look at the emails, a cup of tea, and then hop into the Word, and I'm just reading my way through the Bible at the moment, as well as other passages. And that grounds me for the day and highlight anything that just stands out to me today. That grounds me like someone standing in that floodwater. However, we need to hold on tight. And to me, that means regularly meeting together like we are this morning, where we hear the word, hear it expounded, encourage each other, walk with each other, so that we won't, if we lose our footing, we're holding on tight to each other and won't be swept away. And I believe we need to do both to be able to not only survive, but to thrive. If you look at the Thessalonian church, they had teaching passed on by letter, which was the word. So this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. And by person, where they were meeting together, we read that they started meeting together at an early stage. Probably after three weeks of Paul coming there, a church was established. And I think the Thessalonians were probably one of Paul's sort of um, go-to churches he looked upon fondly, thinking they've got it together so well for so little input, given that I couldn't stay there. But elsewhere in the scripture, we find Paul exhorting us not to give up meeting together. That's the exact words that he used. It's a vital part of our growth and maturity, and it's part of what's essential to keep our faith. Now, this past season with COVID has made it quite hard, and there's always going to be those who, by geography or health, cannot meet together. But fortunately, current technology with the internet and podcasts and the like, it's such a blessing for them. However, it's been my experience that one of the first signs of someone falling away from their walk with God is to stop meeting together. So that's the first thing to go. They might keep reading their Bible and rationalise it by, well, I can look at a podcast or even if I don't do that, I can still read my Bible and pray. Um, that's a pretty insular way to be a believer. But it was the same in the Garden of Eden. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they wanted to do was to stop meeting with God. In fact, they tried to hide from him. So to me, not wanting to meet together is always a warning sign that something's just not quite right. 
Moving forward to verse 16, and Paul begins basically a fairly long wrap-up. So three chapters, and we're only near the end of the second chapter, and he's starting to his, starting really his concluding statements. Paul's got the very best interest of the Thessalonian church and all believers, not that he knew we'd be meeting here this morning, but all believers to come at his heart. And here we find Paul reminding us that God loves us, gives us everlasting comfort and a wonderful hope by his grace. This is much better than anything the world can offer because, as I said before, there's benefits not only now, but benefits for eternity. So no matter what this world can offer, there might be benefits for now win the lottery, which so many people sort of pin their hopes on, um, might set you up for now with a fancy home and all the worldly needs you want, but life will still end one day and whatever that lottery gave you, it becomes useless the minute after you're gone. The grace that Paul talks about is an amazing thing and it's something um, one day C.S. Lewis wandered into a group of theologians speaking and um, they said, oh, come in, Jack, we want to hear what you've got to say about grace. What, uh, want to hear what you've got to say about Christianity compared to all the other religions. What is it that sets Christianity apart from all the others? And he said, one word, grace. And when you look, it's grace that does. Yeah. My best definition or my best example of grace is a story I read some years ago about Abraham Lincoln, who was the famous president of the USA during the Civil War. He was a lawyer with a very sharp mind, but a very humble man, but also a Christian. He abhorred slavery, and it was really the abolition of slavery that led to that terrible war. And one day he was at a slave market, and um, there was a very beautiful young woman being auctioned as a slave, and there was these lecherous men all bidding for her to try and get her, and he could just see what was going to happen to her. So he started bidding, <clears throat> and it went up and up and up, and he made sure he got the winning bid. So he walks away, and the girl comes up to him and says, I'm yours, what do you want to do? And he says, you're free. Yeah. And she says... What do you mean I'm free? He said, I've bought you, you're free, you can do what you want. And he said, she said, okay, um, well, I want to follow you because that's what you've bought me for. And so it is with grace. We're free. We're free and we've been bought with the price. But <clears throat> we're free to want to follow Jesus because there's no better offer out there. Moving on to chapter 3. <clears throat> Again, this chapter continues the long wrap-up. Here we find in the first couple of verses, Paul asking for prayer for his work. He asks for prayer for the rapid spread of the gospel and then it can be honoured everywhere. Also, Paul asks that he be rescued from evil people. Because Paul basically lived the life on the edge. Everywhere he went, he found the gospel offended people. So he suffered regular <clears throat> abuse and persecution as he preached the gospel, including a close call even in Thessalonica where he got spirited away from the house of a man called Jason. Um, and poor Jason copped the rap, but Paul was gone and he'd moved on to the next town. Um, before that, he'd been in Philippi, where, as I said, he and Silas were flogged and imprisoned before being released with apologies when it was found they were Roman citizens. But Paul regularly asked for prayer from various churches <clears throat> because he in no way felt himself above others. He didn't feel that he was so far above the others in his spiritual walk, even though in many ways he was, that he didn't need prayer. What a great example and reminder it is that we should be praying for our leaders. Some years ago, and I'm sure Darren won't mind me saying this, I was having coffee with Darren. I just said, um, Darren, what could I pray for you for? And he said, please pray that I'll be like David and not like Saul. And he sort of didn't elaborate on that, but I think what he meant was that Saul basically lost God's anointing and turned into a disaster. 
David had God's anointing and he slipped up all the time. He made terrible mistakes. He was a dysfunctional family. He had so many wives with children. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, you know, murdered the, the lady's wife so he could try and look at a bit better when found out she was pregnant. So all sorts of wrong things. But David was described as a man after God's own heart. Darren's prayer that he asked that I'd pray for him, and that's what I pray for him whenever I pray for him, is that he'd be like David and not like Saul. But basically we need to be praying for our leaders, for wisdom, for grace and direction. Paul wasn't above this in asking for it, and we should be the same with our leaders. Verse 3, we can feel that at times, with all that's going wrong around us, that bad people and bad things will prevail. Um, you look at the world at the moment, it's a bit of a mess, you know, we've got COVID still lurking around after two years. Um, the situation in Ukraine is pretty dire and you know, will World War III start? Who knows? Um, but the world is in a mess. Um, but Paul reminds us that God's faithful and he will strengthen and guard us as believers from the evil one. Paul's got confidence in the Thessalonian church and his desire that they have a full understanding plus patient endurance. I wonder if Paul was here this morning or if he'd been to this church, would he say this about this chapel as well? It's certainly something we all need to be working towards, that is that we have a full understanding of the gospel and patient endurance. From this confidence in verse 4, in verse 5, Paul's wish is that the hearts of those in the Thessalonian church be directed by God into a full understanding of his love and develop patient endurance that comes from Christ. We only have to look at his example. And patience endurance is not something the world likes because we want it now. We don't want to be patient. We, endurance is not something, unless you're a marathon runner, that you aspire to. Verses 6 on, Paul then gives a warning. <clears throat> he goes on to say, stay away from idle people and people who don't follow the teaching of Paul. It's not a mere suggestion that Paul's making here. It's actually like a court order, and he's saying, basically, do it or else. Paul associates idleness with meddling and causing mischief. And he goes on to say, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And he set the example by when he was there, he actually got a job, so he paid his own way. He reminds the church that they worked hard to pay their own way and not accept handouts from a young church because it would have been difficult for him to preach what he was if he was there just as a freeloader. But it's the same for us in the church today. There's really no place for idleness in a modern Christian church. Idleness tends to lead people into causing trouble and mischief in other people's lives, often leads to gossip or even slander, <clears throat> and I'm sure we've all seen it in certain people around us. I've seen it many times as a doctor, where I get called to the ED department, and, um, or people come to my rooms, <clears throat> and basically the reason they're there is because they had too much time on their hands, and the mischief they got up to just caused trouble. So when you look at the antidote for idleness, you can sort of divide into, say, three periods of our lives. So for those here that are young, um, the advice is find your calling in life from God and follow it with all your heart and your mind and your soul. Pour your efforts and energies into this as it's a great idleness for idleness and mischief. As a medical student, I was reasonably idle. I um, just seemed to get away with the bare minimum through medical school and enjoy the long holidays and would spend it on the beach surfing and hiking and all those sort of things. But a switch turned on to me a couple of years or a year after I graduated as a doctor and um, I realised that life was short, life needed to count and I wanted to make my life count. So I then probably flipped the other way and just poured myself into no idleness and working fairly hard for the next 45 years. 
So I'd encourage you, if you're young, basically make the most of youth. Pour yourself into what you get called to do with all your heart. If you're in the midlife of, in mid part of life, you're probably on the way to doing this, but it's important that you keep focused and not lose your way with distractions. In our Western society, it's become somewhat common for people to pursue goals, get a measure of success somewhere in midlife, but then lose their way by midlife by taking their eyes off the main game. In fact, we've even given it a name. We call it a midlife crisis. There's many reasons to lead up to this, but basically the outworking of it usually falls down to one of three things. And I was listening to a speaker recently, and they put it two different ways. Um, the first is that you start chasing passions, start chasing possessions, or start chasing position, three Ps. The other way they put it was three S's, which was basically sex, salary, and status. And when you look at people that have prominence that have fallen, it's usually in one of those three areas. In fact, when you look at the temptation of Satan of Jesus, basically it was about the same thing. It was about passion, possessions, and position. John goes on to talk in 1 John verse 2. He says, don't love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, basically the three Ps again, is not of our Father and not of the world. So if you're midlife, keep your eyes focused on Jesus and your calling. It is so easy, and we hear of so many people midlife that just stumble and what's set up for a good finish really railroads them in the wrong direction and it can take years, decades or never to get back on the rail again. For those that are in later life and retirement, um, and I'm somewhere there, um, the concept of 65 is retirement age in our society. That came about around the time of World War II when the average life expectancy for an Australian male was 67. So it was decided that if you work to 65, you should have two years sitting on your veranda contemplating life and being paid by the government to do so in the form of an old age pension. And it would also free up jobs for the next generation coming up. So the concept of retiring at 65 is a new concept and the Western world seems to have embraced it. Back in the 80s and early 90s when I was training to be an eye specialist, it went back to 60, then it went back to 55 where people talked of retiring at 55, but what happened was um, there was a financial crisis in the late 80s that those of my generation may remember and suddenly people were running out of money. So the thought of retiring at 55 and having to live for 30, 40 years on what you'd saved became a bad thing, so people extended that out again. We're now at the other way where people's life expectancy is about 82 or 84 if you're male or female. So you've got 15, 18 years of retirement. So the government's trying to increase the um, retirement age to 66, 67 and beyond. However, as a believer, I don't believe God ordained this, and our work that we do on this earth is not just tied up to our day job and being paid. But there can be a freedom post-retirement in having another life that it can achieve so much more for the kingdom. And I'd encourage those my age and beyond that are thinking of retirement or retire, just don't look on it as a time to sit on the veranda and reminisce, but it's a time to start something even further for the kingdom of God. So the best years of your life can sometimes be your last years because you're free from that shackle of having to work nine to five. I've spent much of my career dealing with old people and one of the privileges as a doctor is you um, get an insight into people's lives. People will sh share things with me that they would never share with other people. And one of the things I've noticed is that the sign of someone getting old, not numerically in years, but numerically in, in mind, is that they start to talk about the past all the time. So they'll talk about the good old days, for want of a better word. 
Whereas the sign of someone that's still young, no matter what their age is, they're always thinking of the future and what will happen next. So I'd encourage those of us that are at retirement age not to go into thinking about the past, or it is good to reminisce, but to think about the future and the future that God has for your life because it's not our job to remain idle for the latter years of our life. For me personally, I turned 65 almost two years ago, so I'm almost 67. Six days after I turned 65, a major life event happened where unexpectedly I had a, a massive heart attack, which is normally not survivable. But God granted me an extension on life, and I'm still working through what that extension on life is, but I know it's not to just sit on my veranda or um, <coughs> do nothing. Wow. Wow. That's great. <Yeah>. <coughs> However, we've got to remember that it's understood that circumstances can sometimes mean that people are unable to work due to health reasons and the like. And it behoves those of us that can work then to be generous to those that are in such need and be able to help them. And part of this church is a generous church, like Linnea talked about going over to the coast to help people in floods. This church is a very generous church and we need to keep like that. It's very good advice and Paul reminds us, basically the negative is to stay away from people that are idle, but the positive flip on that is to be associating with people that don't have that outlook on life. Paul finally wraps up in verses 16 to 18, and he says that normally he writes through a scribe, so he had someone dictating, but when he did this, as it appears he did in this letter, he added his identifying signature so that the readers would know it was Paul and not some counterfeit. So at the end, Paul wishes a benediction, and this benediction is not just grace and peace, but he wishes the peace from the Lord of peace himself, who is Jesus. When we look at peace, um, there's a few definitions for it. One, it can be just the absence of war or chaos between individuals or groups and nations. It can also be as a good relationship amongst those same group of people or groups of nations. It can be an individual virtue or state, that is tranquility or serenity, just looking at your inner self. But really the peace that Paul's talking about and the peace that is probably the, the concept that's in the scriptures is a right relationship with God and Christ. And he talks about it elsewhere, talking about the peace of God that passes all understanding. Candy gave a great um, uh, testimony this morning and I've known Candy and had the privilege of knowing her for 15 years and she has had some very tough things happen in her life. But she really alluded to that peace of God that passes all understanding when she went through times like her brother dying, her husband dying. And... Um, it's something that we all need to be asking God for, and the best way to get it is really to have a close working relationship with God and asking his Holy Spirit to fill us with it. So in closing, I wish grace and peace to each of us as we're coming up to the season where we celebrate the high point in the Christian calendar, namely that Jesus died for us, but more importantly that he rose again and cheated death so that we also can cheat death and have eternity. I'd encourage you to dwell on that and it brings great peace for me and great comfort because I know when my life gets to the end, as it one day will and all of us will, um, I've got a future that's in eternity. So what a great way for Paul to finish the letter and a great way for us to finish our study on Thessalonians. Yeah. So thank you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.